Out front next, breaking news, a major loss for Republicans moments ago, a much-hyped House vote to move forward with impeaching the Homeland Security Secretary, failing. One of the few Republicans who voted no to impeach is out front. And a federal appeals court puts a knife through Trump's main defense. When does his January 6th trial now move forward? What does it mean for the possibility of a conviction before Election Day? Ty Cobb, the former White House attorney, will be out front. And more breaking news, a huge legal decision setting a new precedent. The mother of a Michigan school shooter found guilty of manslaughter. A student who was shot multiple times by that gunman and survived is my guest tonight. Let's go out front. And good evening, I'm Erin Burnett. Out front tonight, the breaking news, a fail and a shocking embarrassment to Republicans and the Speaker of the House. A much-hyped vote to move forward with impeaching the Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas has failed. The final tally, 214 to 216. Four Republicans joining every Democrat to vote down impeachment. Now, the House Speaker, Mike Johnson, who just four years ago had railed against single-party impeachments, did not even have the votes from his own party to pass the articles of impeachment against Mayorkas. He thought he did, and he didn't. This was not his only defeat, because just moments ago, right after the stunning Mayorkas failure, the Speaker also had brought another bill, and the House then failed to pass an aid package for Israel that Speaker Johnson had insisted on bringing to the floor. Manu Raju is out front live on Capitol Hill. Manu, these are back-to-back embarrassing losses for the Republicans and most certainly uh, for the new speaker. Uh, Can you tell me about the drama playing out on the House floor? This is not, even up till the final moment, how pretty much anyone anticipated this might go. Yeah, they had actually expect to be cheering this vote on Mayorkas. There was a confidence in the Republican leadership that they would get the votes. They knew it would be close. This is is a narrowly divided House, razor-thin majority here. And they thought they could muscle this through on the slimmest of majorities. But it blew up in their face, in large part because they had miscalculated the absences on the floor. Remember, if there are not, the vote is essentially a majority of people who are present and voting. They expected there to be one Democratic absence. That is Congressman Al Green of Texas. Mr. Green showed up to vote. That changed the calculation considerably on the floor because they could only afford to lose two votes if Democrats were in full attendance. They could lose three votes if there was a if there were one Democratic absence and. Aaron, they lost three Republican votes. Ultimately, there were four Republicans who voted no, but one of those members, Blake Moore, voted voted against it for procedural reasons. The three other members are Ken Buck of Colorado, Tom McClintock of California, and Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin. They all voted against this. So where does this go from here, Aaron? Ultimately, Republicans will like will have the votes to impeach Mayorkas when they are in full attendance themselves. One member, Steve Scalise, the House Majority Leader, has been out for some time due to an illness and treatment that he has been receiving. He, we expect him to come back in the coming weeks. At that point, they will have the votes to move ahead. But no doubt about it, they still expected this vote to, to be successful today, and they had had seen this effort to move on this Israel aid bill collapse over the last several hours as Democrats came out opposed to this plan, joined by a handful of members on the far right who wanted cuts to that Israel aid package. Democrats were opposed to it because they wanted tied to Ukraine aid, border security package, as well as a Taiwan package. But this was a big push by the Speaker to move on a standalone Israel aid package. But as we see here, the razor-thin Republican majority and divisions within the ranks once again making government 
governing this chamber incredibly difficult and this messy Republican majority unable to achieve two major agenda items that the Speaker wanted to clear tonight, Aaron. All right, Manu, uh, certainly a stunning failure. And of course, we should note, it, uh, note you know, it's interesting they're trying to pass Israel alone now. Uh, it is uh, Republicans who had uh, said that Israel uh, had to be tied into the border. Uh, then when that wasn't going to work, then they were they were pulling it out. Out front now, the Republican Congressman Ken Buck. And Congressman, um, look, this is not where your speaker expected this to be. Obviously, uh, you voted against impeaching Secretary Mayorkas uh, based on the facts as you saw them. Uh, only three of your Republican colleagues voted with you and, and only two of them uh, as, in the same way that you did based on, on the, the way that you actually saw the story. You stopped this impeachment. Congressman, uh, you you were able to do that and you did it based on principle and how you saw it. What's your reaction to this stunning vote tonight? Well, my reaction is it's going to change tomorrow, uh, as so many things do in, in Congress. But um, I, I think the principle is very clear that uh, my orcas did not commit a high crime or misdemeanor. Um, Mike Gallagher was a last minute switch uh, on this issue, and I give him a lot of credit for having the uh, really the, the constitutional knowledge and intestinal fortitude to do the right thing. I'm, I'm disappointed uh, that tomorrow it will pass because uh, we are setting new levels, uh, low levels, uh, for these impeachments. And we're going to see impeachments of presidents more often. We're going to see impeachments of cabinet members more often. It is not the way we should be going when we need to focus on solving the very difficult problems that we have in this country. No, and of course it will take uh, quite some time to go ahead with an impeachment proceeding and hearings and all the things that would go with it. Um, obviously, Manu was laying out uh, that Steve Scalise was not present and that when he came back, uh, the Republicans, uh, the Speaker, would be able to have the votes. Sounds like from what you're saying that you think that this will go ahead, that he will go back and do this again. Yeah, tomorrow morning we will have another vote. Uh, Steve Scalise is expected back in town sometime around 11, 11.30. My guess is before noon tomorrow we will have this vote. It will pass. Uh, I, I think it is unfortunate, but that is, uh, that's the plan right now. All right. So obviously Speaker Johnson will then get what he wants. The reality is tonight, of course, uh, you know, it's a pretty basic thing for, uh, for a Speaker and those around him, right? I mean, the miscalculated who was going to be there. Uh, and that error led them to bring this now uh, and, and, and have a failure at least for now. Then, of course, uh, the Israel vote uh, was, was a clear fail for tonight uh, and, and, and for the future, because obviously you needed a larger margin there. Do you think Speaker Johnson is capable of managing the GOP conference right now? I do. I think it's very difficult. You know, uh, to, today he had a two-vote, three-vote majority. Um, very difficult to get 216, 215 people uh, to agree on anything. And, and so when, when uh, we are moving forward, I think he will find more legislation that has a, a broader response. He clearly needs to uh, govern with Democrats. It is, in my view, it is always a mistake to try to impeach a president or a cabinet official or anybody else on a party line vote. And so uh, in the future, I think we're going to see more uh, Democrat, Republican votes. Um, and, and, you know, some people think that's healthy. Some people think it's unhealthy. But that's that's the way uh, this this year will play out. So the border bill, uh, which at the heart of all of this, <laughs> the border, uh, appears dead now in the Senate. Now, last week when you and I spoke, Congressman, you said you thought it should be debated on the floor, that it, that it needed that. There, there's no more important issue. Uh, you said that those who at the time were saying it's dead on arrival, that, by the way, is the Speaker of the House who said that. Uh, you said that, that those who shared that opinion uh, were acting uh, prematurely and unfairly. Yet here we are. How did this happen? 
Well, it happened because the Senate uh, blew this up, and, and they, have to, they have a 60-vote uh, requirement over in the Senate. They weren't going to get 60 votes. I don't know if they're going to push this off for a week or two. But, uh, Aaron, the really important thing from my perspective is that we have a starting place. Uh, this bill isn't perfect, but, but we've got to be able to debate something, amend something, um, and make a bill stronger so that we can go forward. The border is unacceptable, and, and nobody on either side can, can argue that we, that we should continue the status quo. So Republican Senator James Langford, a principled conservative uh, who who stepped up uh, when, when his party called and negotiated in, in good faith and bipartisan basis, uh, he worked his tail off on this bill, and, and he did it uh, in good faith, and that is clear. It's getting him now an incredible amount of flat, uh, blowback from Republicans, including Trump. And here's what Trump said. Just uh, to correct the record, I did not endorse Senator Langford. I didn't do it. I think this is a very bad bill for his career, uh, and especially in Oklahoma. I'm obviously not going to debate the bill, although uh, Democrats and Republicans who did it said it was the strongest in decades. Uh, and, and it was obviously done in incredibly good faith by Senator Lankford. Uh, of course, Trump, though, did endorse Lankford. So what he said there is just blatantly false. I didn't do it. He did. He actually issued a statement at the time saying he's giving Lankford his, quote, complete and total endorsement. And he actually said, and I quote Congressman Lankford is, quote, strong on the border. So just because the facts matter, I did want to lay that out for everyone watching. But what do you think of how Senator Langford is being treated now by some in your party, including the former president? Jim Langford's a good friend of mine, and, and I am really sad that, that he has to go through this. Uh, he, is, uh, he, he did step up. Everybody knows that uh, immigration is the graveyard where political careers go. And uh, Senator Langford uh, stepped up. He did his very best. Uh, you're never going to pass something on a partisan basis through the, the Senate and the House at this point in time. So he tried to do something that would bring people together. And as I said, I think it's a starting point. It's, it's not where I would end up with a bill, but it is something. Um, and I think that when he looks back at his career, uh, he is going to be proud of the fact that he was able to bring people together and, and get this bill in some form uh, before the Senate. All right. Well, I appreciate it very much, Congressman. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Congressman Ken Buck of Colorado, who said voting against uh, impeachment uh, and defeating that for tonight. Out front next, Trump responding after a massive defeat in court today, calling the rejection of his immunity claim, which is at the total heart of his defense, a, quote, nation-destroying ruling. Former Trump White House attorney Ty Cobb will respond next. Also breaking exclusive new details tonight about Trump's new strategy in court on Thursday, a big day on Thursday in front of the Supreme Court, and it is a major shift as that court will decide whether Trump gets kicked off the Colorado ballot. And more breaking news, the mother of the Michigan school shooter found guilty of manslaughter. I'm gonna to speak to a student who was shot by that gunman multiple times, including in the neck and lung. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there. Some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. 
Tonight, a major loss for Trump, a federal appeals court ruling unanimously that the former president is not immune from prosecution for alleged crimes he committed in office to overturn the 2020 election. Now, this is a crucial ruling. It strikes down the entire heart of Trump's defense in the Department of Justice's January 6th case. Trump, for his part, is slamming the, quote, nation-destroying ruling, warning that it will cause grave harm to America and the presidency. It is a monumental decision because it could have huge legal and political implications. So we're going to talk about how this could affect the entire timeline now that this ruling has come down, whether he could be convicted before uh, Election Day. Crucial questions in a moment. I want to bring in out front now, though, the former Trump White House attorney, uh, Ty Cobb. And Ty, of course, you signed that amicus brief in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals arguing against Trump's claims of immunity. And obviously that is the way that this three-court, this three-judge panel ruled, unanimously saying that Trump does not have immunity. I know you've had a chance to read through it. What stands out the most to you? I think what stands out the most to me is how comprehensive and exhaustive the opinion is with regard to American history and the evolution of constitutional law back to Marbury versus Madison. Um, you know, I think we discussed last week that uh, I didn't think people should be overly concerned about a three-week delay, but if we got into late this week, you know, there might be cause for concern with regard to delay. I think 28 days to uh, an opinion of this magnitude and gravity um, Mm. Um, you know, I wish it had been sooner, but at the same time, I can see now why it was not, because this is, this is an epic opinion. Uh, this is an opinion, if it's the last word on these issues, as it may be, depending on what the Supreme Court does, uh, will be studied in law schools for the next 120 years, along with other key constitutional opinions, such as Marbury versus Madison. Uh, I think the, um, the unanimity um, of this of the three judges yeah. and the per curiam nature of the opinion is a very, very important fact. Uh, it will, um, well, I think it already has negated the likelihood of en banc review by the full court um, uh, of the D.C. Circuit. And I think that it will give the Supreme Court some pause, uh, both because it gets these issues right and it doesn't, you know, while it's compelling, um, historic, monumental, it doesn't sweep too broadly. They only decided the few issues that they needed to decide. Uh, they resolved the jurisdictional issue uh, wisely in, uh, in light of the constitutional issues posed by the Double Jeopardy Clause and impeachment, um, which while you know, not uh, explicit uh, constitutional grants of immunity, uh, as suggested, are required under Midland Asphalt, still clearly satisfy the yeah. Uh, important nature of um, uh, why they had to resolve it. Uh, they also, they also, um, you know, limited it to this indictment, this president, these circumstances. Um, you know, they didn't speak uh, for future presidents. They didn't speak for you know future possible indictments. They focused solely on this, and that it, it's clear that the, this judgment is limited to that. So I, I know in that sense you're saying the Supreme Court may not even take it up. I, what about the, the, the argument, and I, I mentioned it briefly introducing you, but that Trump himself made today saying the decision would, quote, terribly injure the presidency and, in fact, the United States itself. Uh, all, all future presidents would be targets for political retribution. American democracy would be at risk. What's your response to such sweeping terminology? Well, I do believe that if Trump is elected, that President Biden could be in danger of 
retribution. Um, but I don't believe there's a legal basis for it, and I don't think it would go very far. Uh, the 44 presidents that uh, preceded President Trump did not uh, waste a second, I think, uh, debating whether they should commit an intentional criminal act. So I don't really uh, buy that argument. Uh, history doesn't suggest that it's true. Uh, Trump also claimed that uh, the Supreme Court took away his immunity. That was immunity that is nowhere uh, promised anybody. And nobody since Nixon has believed that uh, uh, presidents are above uh, criminal process. So I think everything he said today is uh, rhetoric designed for his base, uh, red meat, um, and none of it's true. All right, Ty Cobb, thank you very much. As always, we appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, Aaron. All right, so Ryan Goodman's here with me, co-editor-in-chief of Just Security, and Ankush Kadori, the former federal prosecutor who wrote an article in New York Magazine titled, What Happens Exactly If Trump Is Sentenced to Prison? So, Ryan, um, you, you know, listening to Ty talking about the, the argument here that, that, was, that was given by the, 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 the judges today, the three judges, your team looked at the potential timeline now that we have this ruling on immunity, and here it came, right, comes on this Tuesday in February. What does this mean uh, in terms of whether Trump's case itself, uh, that this this particular trial on January 6th concludes before Election Day? So there's now a pretty good likelihood it will conclude before Election Day. We'll have a verdict. Um, and the court sets this up in motion by saying that by Monday, February 12th, Trump has to basically petition the Supreme Court. They force his hand. And then the court gets to decide whether or not they want to take cert or hear the case. Mm-hmm. And they'll probably make that decision around leap day, <laughs> February 29th. Right. At that point, you got two different tracks. So track one is the court decides not to take the case. They just deny cert. They say what Ty Cobb just That's said. saying it's not worth it. Yeah, it's not worth it. To. This is a solid decision. It's a landmark decision. It's narrow. It's confined. And it is a unanimous decision. So we just leave it be. If that's the case, then we're on a short track. It goes right back to the trial court. June 1st is a very good start date to uh, anticipate. And then the trial wraps up by September 1st. That's the short time frame. Then the longer time frame is the court does hear the case, but they will decide against Trump in all likelihood. Uh, He just doesn't really have a strong case. On that timeline, then we're looking at late July, like July 30th start date, October 30th verdict. And that's conservative. It could be right. a, like a week before October 30th, but obviously bumping right up against. Right. Election. I mean, October 30th is obviously the week before yeah. um, the week before the election. All right. So, Ankush, you've looked at this closely as well. If if Trump is convicted, right, and, and as as Ryan's laying out these scenarios, if that verdict is indeed announced before election day, so you get a verdict, then obviously there's an appeals process. What does the appeals process look at that point, and how long does that take? Well, so there would be a couple of months uh, of a sentencing process immediately following the conviction. Then there would be an appeal. And in the ordinary course, an appeal from uh, a proceeding like this, um, after a verdict, you would expect maybe two to three years. In this particular case, uh, I would hope that if we get to that point, that, you know, the appellate court and the Supreme Court would be expediting their review because obviously there would be an intense public interest in having appellate courts review that verdict um, for any uh, potential defects or legal sufficiency. So um, that's kind of the ordinary course, like two, three years uh, for, for the appellate chain of review. But I would hope, if, again, if that's where this ends up, that that would move more quickly. It would move more quickly. Um, interesting, though, Ryan, something on Kusha said, you could get a verdict on um, the day before Halloween, theoretically, or, or, or sooner, right? But you could get a verdict as, as, as late as that. But that would not mean you even, never mind appeals process, you, might not get, you wouldn't get necessarily a sentence, obviously. Right. Because that's a whole process, too. You would simply get a guilty or innocent initial verdict from a jury. That's right. 
Uh, so the American public will know what a unanimous jury potentially decides and what they are finding him guilty of if it's a guilty verdict, because then we can already begin to calculate what the likely conviction is uh, based on those particular crimes. Sentencing ranges, et cetera. So, Ankush, in your magazine uh, article in New York Magazine, you identified a minimum security prison in Florida that could likely be where Trump go if it go, would go if he is convicted. It's in Pensacola, about eight hours away from Mar-a-Lago. Uh, and you spent some time looking at this. Um, it's a it's a nice place for a prison. Tennis, volleyball, sunbathing, gazebo. Uh, and you got to do a job landscaping yeah. or working in the kitchen. Um, no cell phone, no Internet access are the limitations. How did you land on this facility? So it is the um, only federal prison camp that is the closest federal prison camp to Mar-a-Lago. Let me put it that way. Federal prison camps are the lowest level of security um, in the federal uh, penitentiary system. And the Bureau of Prisons has a preference for placing people, if possible, um, close to the residence where they will be released to, which is Mar-a-Lago in this case. So Pensacola happens to be um, the closest federal prison camp to Mar-a-Lago. Um, and so whether or not it's actually, you know, if we end up there again, that particular camp, um, the general complexion of sort of day-to-day life in the facilities um, is not that different from place to place, um, but that's how I identified it. Uh, and Ryan, you know, it's fascinating, though, and obviously, you know, we're, we're a long way away from it, but I think today it, it comes real, certainly to the former president, in a way it may not have before, that this is where this could go, right? Because it's going to go forward. There is uh, going to be a, a trial, uh, from at least unless some shocking things come from the Supreme Court. Um, Another option, though, uh, you know, if this does happen, is something like home confinement? That's right. Um, So home confinement for a conviction on these charges would be unusual. Um, And generally, the courts have said we're going to treat Trump as any other citizen, like Citizen Trump. A former president can't be above the law. And even the conservative court in the 11th Circuit, all conservative judges said the same thing when it came to the classified documents case. So that's the question that will be before the trial judge. Does he get treated like everybody else in which he does actually serve time in a minimum security prison or maybe home confinement at Mar-a-Lago with certain conditions? And you could also say he is somewhat different. There's a greater security risk with him. He travels with the Secret Service. Maybe home confinement is a better situation. All right. Well, thank you both very much. All of this uh, uh, real after all of the, uh, this time and discussion uh, tonight in a way uh, that it has not yet been. And next, more breaking news, exclusive reporting tonight coming into CNN on a new legal strategy from Trump and where the former president will be when the Supreme Court hears arguments this week, this week, on whether he gets kicked off the ballot in Colorado. Plus, the mother of the Michigan school shooter found guilty of manslaughter. This is a precedent-setting decision that has huge implications. And I'm going to speak with a student who was shot that day in the cheek, neck, and lung. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hack Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. Breaking news, a precedent-setting verdict with huge implications. Jennifer Crumbly, the mother of a convicted Michigan school shooter, has been found guilty of four counts of manslaughter a jury determining that she is responsible for the murders her son committed. 
The jury is saying Crumbly had a duty under state law to prevent her son, who was 15 at the time, from killing four students. Whitney Wilde is out front. We find the defendant guilty of involuntary manslaughter. 45-year-old Jennifer Crumbly found guilty, becoming the first parent in U.S. history to be held criminally responsible for a mass shooting committed by their child. Crumbly's son already serving life in prison for murdering four students, Hannah St. Juliana, Justin Schilling, Madison Baldwin, and Tate Meir, and wounding seven other people at his high school in Oxford, Michigan in 2021 when he was 15. It was a, a long time coming, but it's definitely a, a step toward the accountability like what we've been talking about. Um, it's, it's kind of been our goal the whole time. Over the nine-day trial, prosecutors argued that Crumbly ignored warning signs her son was a threat and failed to lock up a firearm and ammunition he used to kill his classmates. Prosecutors pointed out that hours before the rampage, Crumbly, school administrators, and the shooter had a meeting over this violent drawing on his math worksheet. Crumbly didn't pull her son from classes despite being told he needed help and never told school administrators she had given her son a gun and ammunition. You didn't tell them that you had gotten him that Christmas gift? I didn't think it was relevant, no. Prosecutors argued that Crumbly could have prevented the killings, but instead did nothing. She walked out of that school when just the smallest, smallest of things could have saved Hannah and Tate and Madison and Justin. And not only did she not do it, she doesn't even regret it. Defense attorneys argued Crumbly didn't know about her son's deteriorating mental health and had no way to predict the shooting. Of course, I look back after this all happened and um, I've asked myself if I would have done anything differently and I wouldn't have. That the Crumbly son was a skilled manipulator and they didn't realize it. But prosecutors grilled Crumbly on the warning signs they said she ignored, including a phrase her son wrote in the drawing found by his teacher the morning of the shooting. What about the thoughts won't stop help me? Did that ring out to you? Yes, that was what was concerning to me. The jury foreperson described the evidence that sealed the guilty verdict. The thing that really hammered it home is that she was the last adult with the gun. You cannot choose to um, take your own interest over your child especially when it comes to mental health and um, addressing, you know, concerns. Erin Jennifer Crumbly faces a maximum of 15 years in prison. The shooter's father and her husband, James Crumbly, is also charged with four counts of involuntary manslaughter. He is set to go to trial March 5th. Erin. Whitney, thank you very much there in Michigan tonight. And I want to bring in now Sandra Arthur Cunningham and her daughter, Phoebe Arthur. Phoebe is one of seven survivors of that school shooting. And Phoebe, uh, you were, so everyone understands, uh, you were the first person shot that day and you sustained uh, horrific injuries, your neck, lung, ribs, you were on a ventilator and in critical condition immediately after surgery. So uh, thank God uh, you, are, you are here and you are, uh, you are doing so much better. Uh, Sandra, I wanna ask you though, as a parent, this is an incredible and historic judgment that we have just seen in this country. You have been tirelessly demanding accountability for what happened on that horrific day. Do you feel that that happened today? Absolutely. Um, thank you, Erin. We are definitely so thankful and grateful to the prosecution for all of their hard work all of their determination, the courage to bring forth this case. Uh, we're thankful for the jury that really took this decision seriously, that 
really did their due diligence in court, taking notes. And I mean, this, this is the best turnout we could have expected. Phoebe, how do you feel? I definitely feel like this is a very large step um, in a positive direction. Uh, I think that knowing that parents of kids that are mishandling weapons uh, should definitely be held accountable for what they've done, their negligence, and their part in the crime. And Phoebe, you are incredibly brave, and, and very few can imagine what you have had to go through. Um, I know your, your, your road to where you are now, sitting there with your mom, has been long and hard. Um, you were in critical care. You were on a ventilator. Can you tell me more about how you're doing right now? Um, I'm doing a lot better now. Um, I'm as close to perfect as I probably will get, so I guess I'm relatively completely healed, uh, though I have more long-lasting or lingering um, I guess, effects. My left arm is still significantly weak. Very, uh, throughout my arm uh, when exercising or really just increasing heart rate. Um, so that can be like, if I'm nervous, it can cause a little bit of pain. Uh, so there's definitely a few lingering effects, but I'm doing a lot better now. Thank God for that. Um, but but it, it's important for people to understand uh, that this is something that not only has transformed your life, uh, but 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 will be something you will deal with uh, forever. And 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 that's why this case matters so much, Sandra. I mean, and now the shooter's father, uh, he's set to go to trial on March fifth because they were doing two separate trials: one for the mother, uh, obviously now convicted, and one for the father. Uh, are you hoping for a similar verdict there? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Um, I can't see how anything less could happen or come about from that, but definitely don't want to um, overspeak or say, you know. Um, yeah. Yes, I, I also hope that there is justice served in that case as well. And Sandra, I mean, this, this verdict could change a lot uh, because it changes who can be held responsible in these mass shootings, uh, you know, in, in, in these horrific cases that happen in this country that shouldn't happen but do. We all too often hear about how a gun was obtained or a parent not, maybe not being aware or not paying attention or obviously uh, in this case, uh, it was unbelievable what we heard day after day in that courtroom. Do you think that this ruling changes how parents will react, how parents will handle things going forward? Well, I mean, we definitely hope so. We definitely hope that this shows that, I, I mean, the, the scope of accountability has expanded, that it, it's not just on the shooter, though he did this horrendous act. It is on the parents. It is on the school. It is on, you know, everyone to take accountability and and, and just be responsible, for, you know, for these children that simple things that they missed, you know, hit, I, his mental health, his everything, I mean, yeah, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. I, Phoebe, I just wanted to ask you as you talk about being as, as much back to normal as you, as you may ever be, how are things now for you as a student, as a, as a young person, have, have you changed? I, yes, I've certainly changed. Um, 
it's caused a little bit of everything in my life to change. Uh, at school, it's changed everything. I don't like being there very much. It's a very uncomfortable environment for me for many reasons. Physically looking around, I obviously was there. That's my crime scene at my school. And that's very uncomfortable. And along with that, there's social impacts. Um, it's hard being a victim and it's also hard being the people that want to talk to them. So not a lot of people know exactly when or what to say to me. So often their choice that they fall back on is not to. So I've been almost isolated from this event in certain ways while other, other areas of my life have stood out immensely. So it's definitely been challenging to handle all of the different impacts of it and manage that. Do you wish, I, I guess, to so people would understand that that people would say something to you, that they would acknowledge it or, or, or give you a chance, as opposed to because they're awkward not mentioning it all? Yeah, I definitely, I'm a very social person. I've handled this whole situation with uh, like humor. I'm very lighthearted. I like to be positive. So I would love it if my peers would just show me any sort of support by saying anything rather than saying nothing at all. Well, I hope, I hope they hear you now. And thank you so much for the courage and bravery in speaking, Phoebe. You can only imagine. Um, thank you for having that grace. And Sandra, thank you very much for being here. And of course, uh, being here with Phoebe. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. And next, we do have some breaking news. We are learning exclusively about a major shift in Trump's legal strategy as the Supreme Court is about to decide whether he can be kicked off the ballot. That is this week. Plus, King Charles seen in public for the first time after revealing he has cancer as we're learning new details about Prince Harry's visit today with his estranged father. Breaking news just into CNN, and it signals a major change in legal strategy for Donald Trump. CNN can exclusively report Trump will not be at the Supreme Court when the justices hear arguments on Thursday over whether Trump should be kicked off the Colorado ballot. The case, of course, is based on the 14th Amendment's ban on insurrectionists holding public office. And Kristen Holmes is out front. She is breaking this news. And Kristen, obviously, this is a very different change of strategy than what we just saw in the E. Jean Carroll defamation case, where Trump made a point of being in the courtroom almost every day. What more are you learning? Well, Aaron, that's right, because we've seen Trump really turn these courtroom appearances into campaign events, an opportunity to cry election interference, to talk about political persecution. So just the idea that he's not showing up on Thursday or isn't expected to is really a marked change. And it's an indication of how carefully his team and he is handling these arguments before the highest court in the land, a court in which he has actually appointed one third of the justices on the bench. Now, we were told by sources that Donald Trump knows how high the stakes are, that there's really no upside in him attending the arguments. And I was told by one source close to the inner circle that there were some people who thought that his antics in the courtroom, his storming out, his muttering, were not helpful in those cases, in the E. Jean Carroll defamation case, in the New York civil fraud case. Now, his advisors do insist that this is purely logistical. We know that Nevada caucuses are, tomorrow, are Thursday night, that he's going to be out there probably visiting a caucus site and giving a victory speech because he is expected to win there. But 
Logistically speaking, it is three hours behind and he has a private plane and the arguments are in the morning. So there is some question, doesn't seem with the out, outside of the realm of possibility that he could make both. Another senior advisor telling me very explicitly, this was not a hard decision to make. The political is the more important now. It is our job. It is our focus to make him the Republican nominee. So how confident is Trump that the justices are going to decide on the 14th Amendment uh, in his favor? Well, Aaron, it depends if you're talking about Trump directly or if you're talking about his team. Now, both the campaign and legal team do feel fairly confident in this case. They think that they are on solid legal ground, much more so than some of the other legal issues that he is facing. Donald Trump himself, however, has expressed some concern that the justices, particularly those he appointed, won't want to side with him because they don't want to give the impression that they are biased in some way. Now, obviously, no indication that that would happen, but this is something he has expressed privately. All right. Well, Chris. And thank you very much uh, with those breaking details this hour. Thank you. And coming up tonight on CNN, the former Republican presidential candidate Chris Christie will be with Anderson. And that is coming up at 8 o'clock. Meantime, next here, Prince Harry at his father's side today, one day after the king revealed a cancer diagnosis. Uh, is Harry hoping to reconcile? Plus, a new investigation revealing that the Boeing jet with a door plug that flew off midair may have actually left the factory without the bolts that hold the door in place. That is stunning. And how did it happen? Tonight, we're seeing King Charles for the first time since revealing his cancer diagnosis. Uh, you see him here along with Queen Camilla, and he is waving to crowds. This is after, as they left London for Sandringham House. That is where the king will continue recovering. He has uh, started cancer treatment. And Prince Harry is now in London, just arriving. The estranged prince flying in overnight to be with his father. The visit between the father and son was brief. They spent uh, less than an hour together. As of now, we understand no plans for the brothers Prince Harry and Prince William to meet as of now. Isasaurus is out front. Rushing to his father's side after a troubling cancer diagnosis, Prince Harry arrives in the UK alone. Just one day after the news sent shockwaves throughout the country, Harry flew from Los Angeles to London and drove directly to the King's residence where he stayed for less than an hour. The prince's arrival without his wife, Meghan Markle, or their children comes amid a family feud that has played out publicly, one that saw the couple step down from their royal duties in 2020, following damning accusations of racism and ill-treatment. Only last year, Harry's tell-all books, Spare, detailed episodes of a troubled family life, accusing then-Queen Consort Camilla of leaking stories to the British press, and saying his brother and sister-in-law never really accepted his wife due to racial stereotypes. Now, Harry's back in the UK for the first time since the King's coronation last year. This diagnosis raising speculation of a royal reconciliation after years of estrangement. He's got to come back to see his father, hasn't he? I mean, it's the right thing to do. This whole family feud fit things seems a bit silly in my opinion, as you'll make up, and hopefully this brings them together a little bit more. Perhaps a chance to heal what was once a strong bond, not only between father and son, but between brothers. This is a major event for the royal family, and like any family, a cancer diagnosis comes as a big shock and people will want to rally around, and rightly the priority has to be supporting their father. Look, we'd all like to see relations after a very difficult period in their relationship as brothers. Primarily, the Duke of Sussex is going to be here to spend time with his father. 
We have been told there are no plans for the brothers to meet officially. But in the event 75-year-old King Charles undergoes surgery or becomes debilitated, both William and Harry, first and fifth in line to the throne, might need to step up as councillors of state. With this diagnosis comes uncertainty, not just for the family, but also for the monarchy. And with a slimmed-down royal family, an image of unity will be crucial for the health and the future of the crown. Just as it happened when the family gathered to say goodbye to their matriarch, Queen Elizabeth, in September of 2022. Prince Harry's return, however long, a renewed proof that at the end of the day, regardless of the turmoil, family always comes first. And Aaron, despite the drama that has played out over the years so publicly, there are signs that both men are putting their differences aside. We understand that King Charles and his son Harry have kept communications open. And that's an indication, I think, that they're rebuilding that relationship. And that is important now, clearly more than ever. Erin? Thank you so much, Lisa. Appreciate that. And next, a troubling discovery, because investigators are revealing that that Boeing jet with the blown outdoor bug, it wasn't, you know, in some kind of maintenance and they forgot to put screws back on. It actually may have been at ground zero of Boeing, that they made it in the factory without the bolts. Tonight, a disturbing discovery. The four bolts that should have secured that door plug that flew off in midair during the Alaska Airlines flight were removed and apparently not put back according to a new preliminary report from the NTSB. If you take a look at this picture, uh, sent in text messages between two Boeing employees in September during work on the aircraft, these three circles show where the bolts were missing. Now, the location of the fourth bolt in the top left corner, that is covered by insulation in this picture, but it does come as patience for Boeing is wearing thin. The chief of Emirates, one of Boeing's biggest customers, which just recently placed a $52 billion order, the airline serving the world's busiest airport, saying, quote, this is the last chance saloon for the manufacturer to restore its once pristine and now tarnished reputation. Thanks so much for joining us. Anderson starts now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.